Welcome to the AEM Education and Training Podcast, a collaboration between Brown University Emergency Medicine and the editors of the Academic Emergency Medicine Education and Training Journal. I'm Dr. Gita Pensa, and here's what we've got for you today. Competency-based medical education is a topic we've discussed often on this podcast series, and today we are discussing a critical part of it, direct observation of trainees. But as most of us know, direct observation also has its challenges in a busy emergency department. So today we're discussing a new paper in AEM Education and Training entitled, Does Direct Observation Influence the Quality of Workplace-Based Assessment Documentation? First author, Dr. Jeffrey Landreville is here to discuss it with us. Dr. Landerville is currently an attending physician, assistant professor, and assistant program director in the Department of Emergency Medicine at the University of Ottawa. Dr. Landerville completed a fellowship in medical education through the Department of Innovation in Medical Education at the University of Ottawa and a master's in medical education through the University of Dundee, Scotland in 2020. He's currently a clinician investigator with the Ottawa Hospital Research Institute and has research interests in observation, entrustment, coaching, and competency-based medical education. We're excited to have him with us to talk about this paper, and don't forget to read the full text of this education and training article, which will be open access for a limited time. Dr. Landreville, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Glad to be here. All right. So on this series, we've talked a lot about different facets of competency-based medical education a lot of times, and your paper focuses on the direct observation of trainees. So can we talk for just a moment about the importance of direct observation in CBME? Sure, happy to. So with CBME, we know that observation of residents in the workplace is important. It's a key component to competency-based medical education because it allows for really authentic judgments of competence. Um, and if you think about it, that makes a lot of intuitive sense. Um, you know, it makes sense that you'd want to watch someone when you're trying to assess how well they can do a particular job. Mm-hmm. And the medical education literature on observation and competency-based medical education tends to focus on direct observation. And the direct observation literature is showing that it provides reliable and valid assessment data across a range of competencies. And it's also um, can really foster that supervisor resident trust and promote effective feedback and coaching. Um, So that's sort of uh, where we're at right now in terms of direct observation in the literature related to CBME. Okay. So there's, so that's direct observation. I mean, that's, it's pretty self-explanatory. And then there's indirect observation, which sounds like it means like you're spying on the trainee from somewhere far away, (laughs) but that's not actually what that is. So how are we defining indirect observation in CBME and for the purposes of this paper? Yeah. So indirect observation is interesting. It's, it's much less frequently discussed in the medical education literature Although we know that a lot of assessment occurs through indirect observation during medical training. Um, And it's an interesting area of uh, research that uh, I've gotten um, a particular interest in more recently. So indirect observation, the way that we defined it in this paper for um, the 
the residents that were involved in the study is that it was considered the observation was considered to be indirect when the supervisor did so your attending that you were working with did not watch them perform the entirety or the vast majority of the EPA assessment. So I know that we're going to delve into what an EPA assessment yes. is later <laughs> on in the podcast, but just imagine, you know, um, as an example of an indirect observation, let's say you're a resident and you um, go see a patient independently and you come back and you review that case with your attendee. Uh, they listen to your case presentation and they, uh, and they say, yep, that sounds good. Go ahead, discharge that patient. Or they scan through some your documented uh, note after the patient you've already seen and discharged the patient. Or they speak to a nurse uh, who was involved in the care of that patient when you were in the room doing that assessment. So these are all some examples of how um, indirect observation information can be compiled. And um, there, the judgments that around competence and assessment related to indirect observation are, are made through sort of surrogate data or inferences um, that aren't directly related to having your supervisor watch you perform that task. Okay. So I think it's easy to surmise that direct observation would be preferable. But in your paper, you note that there are challenges to direct observation. So can you talk to us a little bit about those challenges? We've all For probably sure. felt them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, so like I said, off the top, direct observation makes a lot of intuitive sense. And it's seen and it's, uh, it, it just seems like a, a smart way to go about it and something that we aspire to. But in reality, and what's been shown in the medical education literature is that sometimes um, it can be difficult to actually um, get it done. And so there's been a few, uh, just to name a few of the barriers that have been identified. So um, from a resident perspective, often residents have this feeling of sort of guilt or that they're burdening their supervisor by asking them to, uh, you know, break from what tasks they're doing and, su and directly supervise them, do an assessment. And uh, conversely, the supervisors sometimes kind of fear like they may be decreasing that resident's autonomy or sort of hovering over them unnecessarily mm -hmm. and not allowing them to sort of really push along their developmental trajectory. And then a common barrier uh, that both supervisors and residents identify is the time piece, which I think probably a lot of us can um, relate to where Direct, direct observation does sort of require that focused um, piece of time to actually watch that resident do that task or perform that work. And, mm -hmm. you know, in a busy clinical environment, um, sometimes that can be challenging to get that direct observation done. Absolutely. So despite these challenges, you note that it's important for educators to really understand that value of direct observation. And you talk about changes in training programs in Canada after the adoption of competency-based medical education, CBME. So many of our listeners are in the United States and are unfamiliar with the Canadian training system. So can you tell us some of those changes? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm going to give you a really bird's eye overview of the Canadian uh, specialist education system in 30 seconds. So um, <laughs> I'll do my best. But 
essentially over the past five years, um, all specialist training in Canada has transitioned to CBME. So it's been this monumental shift um, towards CBME. And we have our own sort of version of CBME here in Canada called CBD. I know it's confusing, but it stands for competence by design. That's um, awesome. Yeah. So uh, the rationale, like, why did we do this? So the rationale for change was that, you know, medicine is changing quickly and it's been evolving and there, and uh, the practice of medicine has been constantly changing, but our traditional medical education system has remained stagnant and unchanged for over a hundred years. So we thought, you know, in Canada with CBME and the global movement, we thought, let's do this better. Let's see if we can improve how we train residents. And the issue with the old system is that it was really time focused. You know, the analogy would be like you're steeping, uh, a tea, you're steeping a pot of tea. So, you know, you're just sort of as a resident, you were dropped into your training program. You spent five years for most specialties in Canada. And then at the end, you were just assumed that you were, uh, you were a competent specialist at the end of that training program. And we know that that, you know, uh, that that amount of time isn't what's required for everyone and not, and some may require more time. So the new curriculum puts less focus on time and puts more focus on the actual outcomes, which are the competencies that we expect residents to have um, at the completion of their training. And so in 2018, all of the emergency medicine specialist training programs in Canada transitioned to this new CBME curriculum. Okay. So, and within that system, so this, the EPA, which we alluded to earlier, this entrustable professional activity is the primary form of observed and documented workplace-based assessment, or now we're going to call that the WPA. So can you describe a little bit more about how these work in emergency medicine training? For sure. So lots of acronyms and terminology, but it's, it's <laughs> yes. not as complex as it sounds. Um, so the easiest way to think about an EPA is that it's a just, it's a task or responsibility of the specialty that someone needs to be able to do independently by the time that they graduate. So an example of an EPA would be providing airway management and ventilation. I think we all would agree that that's a pretty important task that mm -hmm. a competent emergency physician should be able to do independently at time of graduation. So EPAs are just essentially the specialty of emergency medicine broken down into little Ta little chunks, little tasks that um, were felt to be the key components and key tasks that someone graduating from a specialist training program in emergency medicine needs to be competent at. And so every, in Canada, every specialty has their own set of EPAs that are unique to their specialty. And so in emergency medicine, we have our own set. And the EPAs are broken down into different stages of training. So residents start out in a stage of training called transition to discipline, where they have a specific set of EPAs. Then they move through two sort of intermediary stages called foundations and core of discipline. 
And then their final stage of training is a transition to practice stage. And, and so you can imagine in that stage of training, the EPAs are much more related to uh, supervising junior learners, um, mm-hmm. taking outside calls from referring institutions, uh, managing an entire department, maintaining you know patient flow, that kind of thing. So the EPAs are written in such a way that they're specific to the stage of training that the resident is progressing through. Mm-hmm. And um, they're focused on the essential tasks of the specialty. All right. So one more bit of background for us. You also discussed the role of competency committees. What do they do? Yeah. So competence, competence committees are um, a, a really integral part of our CBME system here. So a competence committee is a committee of physicians um, for, in most iterations. Some competence committees may even have a, a member of the public. Um, but there, it's a it's a committee of individuals who are responsible for reviewing all of the residents' data in terms of their uh, workplace-based assessments, in all their other um, assessment data that they've been accumulating through their residency, and that committee looks at all that data, reviews it in detail, and then is responsible for making decisions around readiness for promotion and progression and eventual graduation from the residency program. So it's the, the, the reason why something like this exists is because part of CBME is that you wanna have a lot of observation occurring in the workplace and lots of these EPA assessments being completed and all of those little bits of information are just little data points, right? So there, you're not expected as a you know resident in your first stage of training to be able to independently manage someone's airway. It's just a data point and that's reviewed at the competence committee. And over time, the competence committee sees that that individual is becoming more and more competent at that EPA to the point where then they can say, yeah, that individual has completed this EPA. They can do that independently. Um, So the role of the competence committee is to review all of the assessment data and make those higher stakes decisions. So the frontline clinician educators don't have to worry about making high stakes decisions. They just need to record what they observed. Okay. All right. So, all right. That was a lot of background, but I feel like it was necessary for, for listeners to really understand the meat of your paper. But let's get into your paper. So what questions were you hoping to answer with this study? Sure. So... Um, basically, the, the main question of this study that we were looking um, to sort out was that we, we wanted to know whether the actual quality of the EPA assessments that are completed um, are any different after the observation was uh, direct or indirect. Um, so a previous study that we completed and published uh, last year showed that in our residency training program, about 70% of EPAs were completed after a direct observation and about 30% were indirectly observed. So there's a, a, quite a bit of indirect observation that's occurring. And so we're interested in just asking a pretty simple question um, in terms of whether the EPA quality is any different 
after the, the observation has been direct or indirect. So this study was conducted at the Ottawa Hospital. Can you tell us a little bit about your center? Sure. Um, so it's probably pretty similar to a lot of, um, a lot of where uh, the listeners are training right now or working at. Um, it's a large academic tertiary care center uh, serves a major or uh, training like a major urban population. It's a training site uh, for the emergency medicine uh, training program associated with uh, the University of Ottawa. And the hospital itself um, has two adult uh, tertiary care emergency departments uh, with annual volumes of around 170, 180,000 patients a year. And our residency program uh, is fairly large. We have uh, 50 uh, residents, so about 10 residents a year. And in this study, uh, when it was completed, as we were sort of still in the process of rolling out CBME through each of the individual cohorts, we had uh, 19 of our residents that were uh, eligible um, to, uh, to participate in the study. All right, so let's talk a little bit about your study design and your methods. Okay, sure. So essentially what we wanted to do is conduct a rating exercise. So we asked residents to record the type of uh, observation that they received when they're filling out their EPA. So the way that this actually works is that residents are working on shift. They have, they're assigned uh, to a specific supervisor um, and they uh, need to complete EPA assessments when they're on shift for their specific stage of training. So, for example, let's say a resident goes and is going to suture up a laceration for a patient. He will, you know, talk to a supervisor and say, hey, you know, I need, a, need to collect EPAs for basic procedures, including laceration repair. Would you mind um, doing an EPA for me? And either the resident would have been directly observed or indirectly observed for that uh, assessment and that EPA would get completed and the resident would indicate on the actual form that they complete. So there's an EPA form that's electronic. They would simply write whether it was directly or indirectly observed. And so we uh, had the residents do that and then collected all those EPA assessments. We did a bit of a process of filtering out some EPAs that were almost always directly or almost always indirectly observed because we didn't think that that would be, uh, those EPAs would be good to compare. And then we also balanced by the supervisor to sort of remove the potential influence that one supervisor rates, you know, uh, all directly observed EPAs are much better or something like that. And so really that left us with about 120 EPAs in a direct observation group and indirect observation group. And then we had four physicians rate the quality of those EPAs. They were blinded to the to whether it was directly or indirectly observed. And they rated them for quality using a special score. So the score was called the quality for assessment of learning score, qual score. And it's a it's a really short three-item score that was specifically designed to rate. Uh, EPA assessments and assessments that are set up like an EPA is. And so that's what we did. And then we performed um, a comparison of the mean qual score between the direct and the indirect observation groups. All right, great. 
Uh, so it looks like you had a total of 1,070 EPA assessments collected by trainees. Let's talk about your results. What did you find regarding the influence of observation type on the quality of the EPA assessments? Yeah, so we found that there was no statistically significant difference between the mean qual score and the observation type. So it did, did not appear based on the results of our study that direct observation led to higher quality EPA assessments. Hmm. Okay. So did that surprise you in any way? You know, I wasn't too surprised because I think that document, we have to remember that we were rating the quality of the EPAs based on how they were documented. And I think documentation of assessments that happen in the workplace is kind of challenging for any kind of workplace-based assessment. And I don't think EPAs are um, are any special from that respect. So I think if you imagine it's been a busy shift, um, everyone's tired, people are looking to get home, and perhaps uh, the, the documentation of the EPA assessment become, can unfortunately become a little bit of an afterthought. I don't think that happens all the time, but I think there's a risk there. And so what, the, what we didn't study and uh, what is something that is a, remains of interest to me is sort of what, if any, is the difference in the verbal feedback that is provided or the, or the coaching that occurs related to the EPAs that isn't actually documented on the assessment. Mm -hmm. Because I think that this study, and we can talk about why I think this is still in a very important study, but I think this study really was only able to tell us about what actually got put down on paper in terms of the documentation, but it didn't delve into the conversations that occurred. And we know that there's a lot of learning conversation that occurs after these observations. And a lot of that is just done verbally and may not actually go down on and is, may not be documented on the actual form. All right. So let's, let's talk about that. What do you think educators should take away from this study? And why is it important? So it's important because of the competence committee that I mentioned before. Um, the competence committee, if you, you can imagine them as sort of these meta raters. So they have this role of compiling all this assessment data and they're tasked with making high stakes decisions around the progression of residents and programs. And so they're really, you know, the competence committee is can only function as well as sort of the, the data that they're receiving. If, if they're not receiving high quality assessment data to review or accurate assessment data, then it's challenging for them to make um, accurate decisions. So that's why the documentation is really important because that's what the competence committee actually sees. So if I work with a resident and we have this amazing shift and we have all sorts of great conversations while we're working together, we do all sorts of coaching and giving great tips and feedback, um, but none of that gets documented on the EPA assessment forms, then the competence committee doesn't get to review that or doesn't get as full a picture of how that resident is actually progressing in the training program. So I think this study highlights how um, it's important. It's really important for um, frontline clinician supervisors to accurately document the conversations that they're having 
um, through the through their written documentation, so that confidence committees are able to see that and review that. All right, and so finally, what's gonna come next? Are you going to look at those conversations, or what do you think should come next? Yeah, so we've got uh, an ongoing study right now, actually looking at that. So we're doing a qualitative uh, research project, interviewing residents. And we're looking at uh, better understanding their perceptions around direct and indirect observation and how they feel about it and whether they feel that there is a difference in terms of the the type of coaching and feedback that they receive after um, different forms of observation. So it's been uh, it's in progress right now and we've got some uh, some really interesting results. So stay tuned uh, for future publication related to that. Well, that sounds fantastic. I can't wait to hear about it. So thank you very much for coming on the podcast to talk about this paper. And I appreciate your time and your work. It was my pleasure. Uh, Thanks so much for the invite. I really appreciate the opportunity to chat about the paper. Thanks for listening to this AEM education and training podcast. Be sure to read the full text of this article available on our blog at brownemblog.com. Subscribe to all our AEM podcasts on Apple Podcasts. Search for AEM Early Access, all one word. Today's music is by Scott Holmes. I'm Dr. Gita Pensa, and we'll see you next time.